standing for the reading of scripture this morning. Uh, we'll continue in the gospel of St. Mark chapter 8. This morning we continue in verses 23 through 26, 22 through 26, uh, the gospel of Mark chapter 8. Let us hear and attend to the reading of the word of God. Then he, that is Jesus, came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. The gospel narratives give us samplings of the many and varied mighty works and teachings of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to save sinners. Occasionally, an account of Jesus' works and teaching is given more details. And within a story context, providing divinely revealed explanations and applications for the Christian believer's life of faith, we should rejoice in that. I mean, it provides us a a, a teaching, it provides us a template, if you will, for how we are to understand and how we are to uh, apply and um, interpret Scripture. And so when we have those added details given to us, uh, not only are they matters of interest, they're matters of great benefit. Now, one such example is found here in the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, verses 20 through to 26 that we look at this morning, where Jesus restores the sight of a blind man by a two-stage healing, which is the only recorded incidence of a process healing by Jesus. Uh, Only recorded incident of a process healing by Jesus. Uh, Mark's Gospel account, as you know, I've mentioned several times, repeatedly emphasizes the immediacy and the urgency of Jesus' public ministry. So it is important, it is striking, it should get our attention that uh, that Mark includes this account of Jesus' healing by a process rather than immediately. And that should be interpreted in the context of the story. I think there is a purpose for it. And I'm going to tell you what I think that purpose is as we look at that account this morning. Now remember, we're in chapter 8. And I've tried to give you something of a summary of each chapter in reference to uh, straight talk about Jesus Christ from the Gospel of Mark. And here in chapter 8, the straight talk about Jesus Christ concerns the gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world. And it demands faith of us. What do I mean by the gospel paradox? I mean that which seems to be contradictory with the eyes of our flesh. When you look around you, do you see divine providence that's integral to the salvation of the world? Do you see that God is actively involved in saving this world with the eyes of your flesh? You may question that and say, I don't see it. I don't see how that can be happening. Because we don't look with the eyes of the flesh. The gospel paradox is settled for us by faith. We look in faith sight, not physical sight. What about the gospel paradox of progressive revelation recorded in Holy Scripture? People are always telling us the Bible is contradictory. The Bible contradicts itself. But it doesn't. We look in faith, Scripture interpreting Scripture, and we settle that 
false claim and that dispute by faith, not by a blind faith, but by faith sight in the gospel. Uh, there, there is this concern about predictive prophecy. I think it gets way off base. Predictive prophecy, which we'll see in the next section of chapter 8, finds its termination in Christ's new covenant gospel. You want to interpret prophecy correctly? Start with Christ and the new covenant gospel. I'm not saying there still aren't things that we may not fully understand or that may not be fully revealed to us. I mean, what do we not get when Jesus said, no man knows the hour of the Son of Man's return? God the Father has not revealed that. Neither does the Son. Neither did Jesus in his public ministry and in his his days of humiliation. He says, I don't even know that in my human condition. But people are always going about saying, oh, we figured it out. We know when Jesus is coming back. That gets us off track. That gets us derailed. That causes us to, to have a confused and blurred focus away from what Scripture says. And that is that predictive prophecy terminates, finds its uh, end, finds its meaning in Christ's new covenant gospel. And then the gospel paradox that is a, a challenge to us that we must embrace by faith. If we look at it with our own trying to understand it or figure it out or with what we see around us, what about the promise of Christ coming and the gospel consummation to the glory of God? What did Peter say in his day that what the detractor said? Where's the promise of his coming? God must have fallen asleep because everything continues to go evil and wrong in this world. Is that the way you see it? You think God has forgotten his promise? God is not slack concerning his promises. By faith, we're called in the gospel to believe in the gospel consummation, the promise of God, to the glory of God in Christ. Things not seen, but believed. And so that's what I'm talking about here in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel. The gospel paradox in this sin-fallen world demands faith of you and me in these ways. In verses 1 through 10, we saw that Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 4,000 plus was not a contradiction or a, a conflating of different stories from confused writers of Scripture. We saw that Jesus had an intent, and Jesus even references that he fed over 5,000 in one occasion. He fed over 4,000 on another occasion. He called his uh, uh, disciples to witness of those events. He said, don't you remember these things? They just happened. How could you forget? How can you be without understanding? And that... This feeding of the 4,000 was in Gentile territory. That was important. It further demonstrates to us God's providence that's integral to the salvation of the world. God is saving the world through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And we better believe that by faith. Going on then in verses 11 through 26, we are in the passage where Jesus is healing a blind man, but doing it in two stages that provides another gospel object lesson. He's teaching us a lesson here. It's about the need to understand the progressive revelation of Scripture. We need to put things together. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Aren't you putting it together? Aren't you synchronizing it? Aren't you connecting the dots? Where is your focus? And I'm going to point out to you that in healing this blind man in two stages, Jesus demonstrates and gives an object lesson of those very things. Connect the dots and focus on what Scripture progressively reveals to us. And we do this in the context to avoid false teaching and corruptive influence that spread like leaven or yeast. That's what Jesus said. That's what kicked this whole thing off. 
When Jesus said, beware of the least yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, and the disciples said, oh no, he's upset with us because we didn't bring enough bread. And Jesus said, I'm not talking about bread. Don't you get it? Don't you connect the dots? Don't you see it clearly? Don't you focus on what I've done, what I've said, even so recently? Why don't you understand? How is it that you can't understand or don't understand? And so Jesus says, I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about the spread of the corrupting influence and false teaching of the Pharisees and of Herod's club. So in this exchange with the Pharisees, when Jesus came back to the other side into the predominantly Jewish territory, um, we find Jesus entered change with the Pharisees who met him there, that he had this spirit emotional growl that he gave verbal expression to over the Pharisees disputing. They were trying to bait and to entrap him with temptation to perform heavenly signs. And this should be interpreted by the words and the story in the wider scope of, of the Bible. We talked about that. We, we identified these things and showed why Jesus was upset and why this was uh, um, a false teaching and a false attempt, they were trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus was aware of their trickery. Jesus exposed their trickery. We need to be wise that way. And then we find in verses 14 through 21 last week that Jesus' teachings and works are the ultimate validation of God's ordinary means of grace intended to accommodate basic human learning and understanding in the use of language and object lessons. Now we said this doesn't take the place of the need for regeneration, that God open our blind eyes spiritually, that God bring us uh, alive out of the deadness of our sin and insensitivity to his word and truth and his presence and being. No, we have to have regeneration. But once we are regenerated and made new, we have a new way of seeing by faith. We have a new understanding in the mind of Christ. I mean, Scripture elaborates on these things and tells us then that God uses ordinary means, even what the world says is foolish. You, you've heard me say it many times. The, the world, your unbelieving friends, and even those who are professing Christians who have lost confidence in God's ordinary means would say, you're coming in here to hear a sermon that not only informs but often exhorts and sometimes shames you for your sin and your behavior and your lack of faith. Why would you do that to yourself? We can go have coffee. You can go to the lake. We can fellowship on the golf course or the fishing boat or whatever it might be. There's a whole lot more pleasant things to do than go in there and sit and be berated by some guy who's yelling all the time. That's the way the world sees it. But not according to God. He has ordained this. And he's ordained it intentionally to set a difference between the believers and the world and what we do humbly Submit to that we want to receive the word of God for instruction, for rebuke, for correction, in godliness, not human opinion, not self-ego projection. You have a responsibility. To, if I'm preaching the word of God, you need to hear it. You need to examine the scriptures to see if it's so. You need to be able to see through in terms of my personality and my temperament. You can tell when somebody's an egotist. And so all of these excuses and all of these attempts 
to undermine what God has appointed, we have to meet by faith as we are informed. An informed faith from the Word of God. God uses ordinary means intended to accommodate our basic human learning and understanding and even in the use of language and object lessons. That's what we're looking at here. Jesus used a figurative language. And Jesus gives an object lesson. He intends that we understand what he means. He expected the use of analogies in preaching and teaching, his object lessons in healing and miracles. He expected us to be, be mentally clear and connected to the theological subject of his lesson objective. Jesus I want to teach you about this. I want to teach you not to be influenced by the false teaching and the spreading corruption of the influence of the added traditions of men of the Pharisees that bind the conscience and do not lead you closer to God, and the superstition and the power plays of Herod and his party and their political gerrymanderings and attempts to gain uh, power. I want you to be wise against that. I want you to see through it. I don't want you to be under the influence of those things. And now I'm going to give you an object lesson that you need to have your sanctified sight restored. You need to see clearly. And you see clearly... From the Word of God, by seeing things through the Word of God. So in verses 22 through 26, which we read earlier, the details and the description of Jesus restoring this blind man's sight illustrates the progressive revelation of Scripture focusing and clarifying God's way of salvation by faith sight. That through the New Covenant Gospel. We're celebrating the New Covenant Gospel here. Remember how Mark started out? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, the gospel, the good news is sourced in Him. Now He's giving a straight talk about who Him is. Him is the Son of God. So, look at verse 22. And He, Jesus, came to Bethsaida. And they brought Him a blind man and begged Him to touch Him. So Mark records another change of geographical location They've now gone to Bethsaida. Uh, and he also records another act of faith and prayer. They bring a blind man to Jesus, begging and praying him to touch and to heal him. Now, this is another interesting secondary fact. But I want to point it out to you because there's not a contradiction or a confusion in Scripture. This is a town or a village named Bethsaida. There was more than one town or village named Bethsaida. From the geographical context and details that we have in, the, in this story in, gospel, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, it, it would seem that the best uh, uh, identification would be Bethsaida Julius. But there were other towns that were named Bethsaida. So it seems that this one fits the context and the details that are given to us in geographical references because this is the one that was closest to uh, the Sea of Galilee where the Jordan River comes into the Sea of Galilee. Now, the fact that we cannot say dogmatically, this was absolutely the Bethsaida to which Jesus went because there were other Bethsaidas. There was one close also over to Capernaum. And we were just not told which one that it happened to be. If I told you I was going to Springfield, where would I be going? If I told you I was going to Greenville, where would I be going? Well, you would assume, okay, Springfield, probably, hmm, Massachusetts or Missouri? Hmm. Oh, Greenville? Well, surely that's South Carolina. You know the most common town name in the U.S. is Springfield? I could be going lots of places. Do, you, do we think that's a contradiction? Do we think that that's some kind of uh, 
trick or some kind of um, intended corruption? No. We just say, well, you either assume that which one I'm talking about or I have to specify it. So why would we want to import that into the Bible? Oh, the Bible's not trustworthy because it doesn't say which Bethsaida they're going to. I hope you see how foolish that is. Going on to the first part of verse 23. And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. So Jesus leads the blind man. He shows his compassion. He listens to their request. They're praying. They're bringing him and begging him, please do this. But he leads him out of town, away from the crowds. Jesus is seeking some seclusion with his disciples. And from a closer reading and study of Mark's gospel, for example, we find out that Jesus is moving away from the public to a more private ministry with his disciples. This is a transition that's going on. It's somewhat gradual, but with a close reading and study of Scripture, we see that pattern beginning to develop. That Jesus is using this occasion of healing this blind man as an object lesson for the need for more theologically focused faith for his disciples does not detract from the personal compassion and attentiveness of Jesus to this blind man. Jesus heard their request. Jesus took the man by the hand. He's going to further touch him in reassuring a blind man. But he doesn't want public notoriety for this. He has another intention of a more secluded and private ministry with his disciples right now. That transition is taking place, and we're going to even see more of that as we go on in the Gospel of Mark. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is insincere. Why would we think, oh, you know, to say that Jesus is using this as an object lesson for teaching, which you and I should also receive that teaching, does that mean that Jesus is insincere about healing this blind man? How could we be so one-dimensional? How could we be so shallow? Jesus is demonstrating his compassion and his power. He doesn't want notoriety. He is going to touch and heal this blind man. And that's a cause for great rejoicing. But he's also going to teach his disciples and us in doing that. Because he has uh, the depth of the multifaceted purpose and the will of God that he demonstrates to us. So scripture reveals that God's providence is both individual and collective. Do you know that? You see, here in the body of Christ, I know you know that. It's not just about me, but it's about one another. We have those scriptures that we often use. I I used one this morning from Ephesians 4. We are members of one another. We are neighbors in a special way. Not just who lives next door to us, but neighbors in covenant with God. And we are more than that. We are in the family of God as related to one another. And more than that, in the body of Christ, we are livingly united to one another. What can I say about God's providence individually and collectively? What God does for you affects me. Even so much that Paul says even sins affect the body of Christ. Wow. That's some pretty heavy teaching. I'm not even going to go there right now. But we are livingly connected to one another. And so the personal and attentive care of our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the body of Christ of which we are a living reality. In his providential care, saving faith and sanctifying faith are not one-dimensional. So often as believers, our testimonies 
of God's mercy and grace and special providences in our life are sanctified. They're set apart. They're made holy. They are used graciously by God and His means to encourage our faith in Christ. You encourage me. I can't tell you how much you encourage me. I can say like with the Apostle John, you are my loved ones. With the Apostle Paul, with all the apostles, with the Apostle Peter, with Jesus, you are beloved. How we love one another in Christ. Show the world that we're Jesus' disciples because we love one another. We have love for one another, not the way the world loves. And your testimony of faith, when you share to me God's presence in your life, if it's sustaining you through difficult times, if it's working through a concern that you had or an unsettled fear or, or, or struggling faith, God sanctifies that to me. When I'm praying for you, God's helping me. I believe you know that yourself. You pray for me. Scripture says you should. And I think, like the Apostle Paul, who is sufficient? I'm like Saul. I want to run away and hide under the basket somewhere. But only by the sustaining presence and grace of God is sufficiency found through Christ to do that which we are not able in our own strength or flesh to do. That includes the flesh of sight, seeing with our eyes. If we start looking with our eyes, we begin to trip and fall, and we're not looking to Christ and following his path and his way. We are to look in faith, faith sight. That's what this healing in this recorded event in Mark's gospel in two stages of Jesus healing this blind man is all about, faith sight, sanctifying our faith sight that we might become more focused to see near and far by faith God's way, God's providence, God's doing. Not that we can focus on it and identify it by detail, but we focus and identify who God is, who Christ is. You see, we get that wrong. We think living by faith sight means God's going to reveal everything to us. No, he's not. Living by faith sight, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm your Savior. Look at me. Don't look at the waves. Don't look at the road. Don't look at the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the beheading of John. You look at those things through me. That's what, do you get that? Faith sight isn't that God's going to reveal to you every step about the future. Faith sight is Jesus is saying, you look at me because I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm going to be there no matter what happens. You look at me. That's faith sight. And and we see him through scripture as as he's revealed to us in scripture in reference to what we do that pleases him. So... We look at the second part of verse 23 on to verse 25. Jesus spit on the man's eyes. He put his hands on him, and he asked him if he saw anything. And the man looked up and said, I see men or people like trees walking. Then he, Jesus, put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he, the man, said, was restored and saw everything clearly. So by a curious process, we we have to agree. Is it your curiosity, Pete? Mine is. Wow, it was cool that Jesus did this. He did this differently than maybe some of the other ways he did it. And we're told that, you know, he did this. I find it curious. He restores this man's sight 
literally healing his physical blindness. Make that certain. Jesus heals this man's physical blindness. But he also gives an object lesson about faith sight becoming more clear and focused through the progressive revelation of Scripture. That's the main point that I'm trying to connect here. So Jesus spit on the man's eyes. Uh, that a little bit yucky in our sensitivity? And we kind of like, that sounds kind of gross. <laughs> but note this, another lesson for us. Spittle is not always used in Scripture as a demonstration of scorn and contempt. You know that people spit on Jesus. You know that there are ref- references in Scripture to the spitting in scorn. And the spitting is a, as a demonstration of degradation, to spit on someone. But in this instance, Jesus spit on the man's eyes, not in scorn and contempt, but for help. And it's a good thing. So once again, let's don't force some kind of interpretation on Scripture. It's just a good lesson. So sp- spitting on someone is not always bad. Okay? Jesus spit on this man's eyes. Have you ever seen... Maybe you did it yourself, or maybe as a child you remember this. Mom, licking her thumb and wiping the corners of your mouth or wiping the sleep out of your eyes. Mom giving you a little bird bath with her spittle. We don't want to talk about that. That's kind of gross. No, mom was being affectionate and loving, and she wiped the sleep out of my eyes, or she cleaned my, the chocolate off my mouth. But don't talk about spitting. She just licked her thumb. <laughs> We just get a little bit overly wrought about sensitivity to these things, don't we? But it isn't interesting that Jesus spit on the man's eyes, not as contempt or scorn, but in healing him. So Jesus asked the man if he could see anything with his eyes. And I won't go into the, the Greek text here with detail. I've given a few notes. But it's very interesting how this develops in the Greek text. And, and the man looking up. He opened his eyes. All of a sudden, he could partially see. Light, images, figures, movement. I see people walking around, but they look like trees. Now, the emphasis here on Jesus restoring this man's sight uh, indicates to us that he was not born blind, but this was some kind of blindness that came by disease or accident. So Jesus goes a step further when the man has physical sight restored but unfocused and blurry. And so Jesus again touches the man's eyes with his hands. He doesn't spit on him a second time. He just touches him with his hands this time. And the result is that, and this is really interesting, the man's vision is clear and focused to see near and far. Focus to see near and far. Jesus gave him perfect 2020 vision. Would you expect anything less? <laughs> no. So what's the point? What's the point? Well, by the comparison of Scripture from progressive revelation, the description this man gives of his restored sight suggests an object lesson that's not about regeneration. It's not about opening the eyes of one who was born blind but rather about sanctification, about restoring and improving his vision. And this is the same way the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant sanctifying faith is described. You know the the reference in uh, Hebrews 11 to the the hall of uh, heroes of, of God's Old Covenant people. Well, this is what's said about that hall of heroes from God's covenant people in the Old Testament. All these died in faith. 
not having received the promise, promises, but having seen them by faith afar off and were assured of them, embracing them and confessing them that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But by faith sight, their faith sight was sanctified that they could see far away, not the full and final focused, but the full and sure promises of God. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes, For now we see in a mirror dimly, or we see in a foggy glass. It's like we get out of the shower and the mirror's fogged up. We see me looking a whole lot better until I wipe the fog away and I, I age uh, immediately. I get out of the shower, I'm like, yeah, I don't know, young strapping fellow. Wipe the fog off. Oops, boy, did I age fast. Well, Paul says, I believe this passage is about the canon of Scripture. Some believe it's about the second coming of Christ, but in the context, and that's an argument maybe for another day. But anyway, this is why I'm including it here, is I think that, that as we look into the full revelation, the progressive revelation, and the finalized canon of Scripture, we're able to see, <laughs> not no longer in that foggy glass, but much more focused and clearly from the progressive revelation of God and the fulfillment of the gospel. And then in James chapter 1, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the mirror, no, into the perfect law of liberty, what is that? That's the Word of God. That's the progressively revealed and finalized and full and sufficient plenary Word of God. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one is, will be blessed in what he does. So James uses this example. It's a very uh, homespun and common example. You get up in the morning, you go into the bathroom, and you look at yourself, and, man, I need to shave. I got sleep in my eyes. Uh, I must have been snoring because I got crust all around my mouth. And then you say, okay, I think I'm good for the day. No. He says, what do you You wash your face, you comb your hair, you brush your teeth, whatever it is you get ready to, to spruce yourself up. We all do that. He's giving us a very common homespun example, but then he makes the application and says, no, what is this about? This is about looking into the word of God and the liberality, the profuseness of God's goodness to us to show us what, who we are and what we need. And he tells us how to clean up in Christ. It's not self-salvation. It's sanctification by God's means of grace that we clean up. Like, like Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus telling us we need to clean up. Well, I believe we understand that spiritually. We look into the Word of God and we find out, oh, I need to get the wax out of my ears spiritually, my spiritual ears. We, we look into the Word of God and we say, oh, I need to be more attentive. I need to stop falling asleep when I'm praying or reading. I've got to work on that. I've got to find a better time. If I'm constantly trying to pray and I just fall asleep, well, I better change my prayer time to when I'm awake. We need to clean up. That's what James is saying here. The Word of God directs us like giving us our reflection in a mirror and showing us where we have areas that we need attention. And again, I think that that's pretty obvious. 
I think it's pretty clear. I think you can see it from the scripture. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 4 telling us about that faith sight, not physical sight. While we do not look at the things which are seen, physical sight, what's around us, but at the things which are not seen. Well, how can we see them if we don't, <laughs> if they're not a, to be seen with our eyes? Because they're seen by faith. Again, I believe you understand. Faith sight, not physical sight. Faith sight of the things that are revealed to us in the Word of God. We look to those things that can't be seen with our physical eyes. How do we, those things, uh, are they revealed to us? They're revealed to us through the Word of God. For the things which are seen with our physical eyes are temporary. This is not going to last. But the things which are seen with our faith sight that God's word reveals to us in the progressive revelation of scripture, those things are eternal. Because I can tell you this, God is fulfilling his promises. God is doing his work. Jesus didn't die in vain. Jesus has ascended on high after his resurrection. And there he rules till he makes all his enemies and his church's enemies his footstool. Whether you can see it or whether you believe it, doesn't change it. But I'm calling you, as Jesus called his disciples, to top, stop being slow-sighted. Stop being unfocused. Stop being uh, unteachable. All these descriptions that Jesus uses in reference to their spiritual condition, and basically what Jesus is saying is, open your eyes in faith to what the Word of God teaches and believe that. Get your eyes off the world. Get your head out of all the polemic, talking head, political voices. I mean, don't let that rule over you. Don't let that influence. Beware of the spreading of the false influence and false teaching, even of those who may agree with your political position. They're not preaching the gospel. Do I say, stop your ears to it? No, listen with discernment. You're going to let them tell you what the Bible means? Are you going to let them tell you that the gospel has failed? Are you going to let them tell you going to church is worthless? What comes first? What is it that God puts the priority on? What is it that God reveals to us and says, this is most important to me? Is it most important to you? How do you see it? So this is a powerful object lesson to us about the value of progressive revelation. And how God gives us clarity and focus to see near and far through his promises and what he reveals in the Holy Scriptures. So the question is, what are we looking at? What are you looking at? Verse 26 closes out this section of chapter 8. Then Jesus sent the man away to his house. He's done that before. He didn't put a gag order on this man. He just said, don't go back into the town or tell anybody in the town. I don't want it known there because I don't want to be uh, smothered again with all these people coming out. I have another purpose in my ministry and caring and, and teaching and founding the disciples. So don't go back into town. Go another way. Angel told the Magi, don't go back to Herod. Go another way. <laughs> they obeyed him. The man who uh, Jesus uh, th threw the demons out of said, no, you can't come with me. Go back and celebrate this and publicize this among your house and among your people. Tell them what God, the great compassion God has had for you. Je Jesus does not give this man a gag order. 
Do you think when this man walked back to his home and walked into the door and he started calling people by name who were in different places in the home or on the way home? Don't you think they were amazed? What? How can you see again? Jesus. Jesus did it. Didn't give him a gag order. He just gave him a ministry directive. Go a different way back to your house. So I hope that helps. But let us look to the scriptures to see what God has revealed and the progressive revelation of the wonder of what God has done. Um, In Psalm 1 this morning that we confessed, I, I wanted you to take note that that's a motif, the tree of life motif in scripture about spiritually flourishing. How can I speak of a motif or a theme or a type Because it's progressively revealed to us in Scripture to the point that Jesus is the tree and we are the branches. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. We are the olive tree of God with engrafted branches that bear fruit. You see that, don't you? A progressive revelation of Scripture and a motif or type or example. It's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it beautiful how we can be taught? I'm really kind of got uh, mesmerized by this uh, typology in Scripture and uh, the prophetic antitypes that are like God's picture book. And one of the things I'm working on is in our maturity in Christ, we move from the picture book. Did you like coloring books? Did you like sticker books when you were a child? But then you mature and you go on and You go to an art gallery? Maybe some of you aren't there yet, but there's hope. You go to an art gallery. It's so fascinating. I love it. I don't care anything about going to Paris, but I want to go to the Louvre. If they could just move it somewhere else. But see, as we grow up in Christ in the progressive revelation of Scripture, we move from the big coloring book, storybook, to the intricate gallery of the wonder of God's masterworks. So I can talk to you about the tree of life motif and identify in Jesus our tree of life. That's what I'm talking about, progressive revelation of Scripture that keeps our eyes and understanding and focus near and far on who Jesus is. See, that's faith sight. And I'm going to emphasize this one more time. Don't confuse faith sight with God giving you some kind of prophetic revelation of what's going to happen tomorrow or 10 days from now or two years from now. That's not faith sight. Faith sight is a clearer, focused connection that no matter what happens today or tomorrow or 10 days from now or 10 years from now, no matter what happens, my sight in faith is on Jesus and the promises of God in Him. Will you keep worshiping? Ten days from now? Will you keep worshiping two years from now? Will you keep worshiping ten years from now? Maybe I'll be worshiping in heaven ten years from now. I don't know. But by the grace of God, you know what I can say? I will be worshiping Jesus Christ as my Savior. So that's what I'm talking about. The progressive revelation of God and the focusing and clearing up of our faith sight the gospel our concluding